Hope you all are doing well. I almost bought the farm right there. Um, we are in the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is the first week that we are studying through the book of Ephesians. So we are starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, as many of you know, we've been studying through the book of Acts. And so that's probably, we're, I think, 50 sermons in the book of Acts. And as we've been going through, particularly the second half of the book of Acts, as we see Paul plant a church in a certain city, we go look at that letter. So when we saw Paul plant the church in Corinth, we went and looked at 1 Corinthians, and then we went back to Acts, and then we looked at Acts chapter 19, 20, and 21. And so as we saw Paul plant the church in the book of, uh, I'm sorry, in the city of Ephesus, and really at the very end of 21, whenever he had a conversation with the Ephesian elders at the end of chapter 21, uh, now we're moving over here to the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be in the letter of Ephesians for the next 12 weeks, uh, which means we'll roughly take about a half a chapter each week. Uh, so we'll be doing this because there's six chapters uh, in uh, Ephesians for November, December, and January. So uh, at Remedy, whenever we read the text, uh, we stand. So if you're able, uh, I'd love it for you to stand. Uh, and we're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Now, usually whenever I read, especially in uh, narrative, like we look at Book of Acts, I, I'll read it at a brisk pace. Uh, however, this text is so jam-packed. Every clause, every phrase is, is so jam-packed of theology. I'm going to go a little slower here, so we can try to, I mean, I'm still going to exegete it for, you know, an hour and a half, so we're going to go through it slow when I do that. I'm just kidding, it's not an hour and a half. But when I, we're still going to look at it uh, at, at a slower pace, but I want to read it so we can let it soak in as much as possible. And after I finish, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God, and that's just signifying a couple things. One, you're thanking God that he would speak to us and give us his word. And second, the things that we see and hear that the Holy Spirit teaches us, we want to say yes and obey. So let's read it together. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to, the purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, the idea 
of having to preach through such a jam-packed, rich set of verses is daunting and intimidating. And so we, I pray for a special help from the Holy Spirit this morning that you would help us all see every beautiful avenue of this good news of the gospel and that you would enrich our hearts and souls and that you would set our hearts and minds aflame for worship. Uh, we pray that all the things that would be true and helpful that we would say and those that wouldn't be, uh, that we wouldn't look at those and we wouldn't think of those, but instead all the things that are true and helpful, God. Be with, the, be with me now, Lord, and give me great insight and understanding and ability to communicate this text in a way that's profitable for us all. And I do pray, God, that if anybody here doesn't know uh, Christ, if they are not a believer in Jesus, they're not a Christian, that you would save them this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at the letter to the Ephesians. Uh, The letter of the Ephesians is 155 verses, so it's not terribly long. In my Bible, it's only about five pages, and if you were to read it, it would take maybe about 15, 20 minutes to read the entire thing. Uh, one commentator, uh, his last name's Snodgrass, he says, pound for pound, Ephesians may, be, uh, may well be the most influential document in history. So, of course, Romans would be put in that list, but being that Romans is much longer, and this is shorter and more condensed, pound for pound, this might be one of the most influential documents in all of history. Not just Christian history, but in history. We've seen Paul plant this church in Ephesus. Uh, And as he planted the church in Ephesus, he finished his third missionary journey, went back down to Jerusalem. He eventually was arrested in Jerusalem and sent far west out to Rome. And as he's in Rome, he's put in prison. And as he's in prison, uh, about a year or so later, uh, he writes this letter in prison to the, the church in Ephesus, wanting to do a couple things, wanting to tell them about who they are positionally in Christ and then how to live. And so uh, this is written maybe around A.D. 60, A.D. 61. Paul is eventually killed for his faith in A.D. 65. So uh, while it's not like 2 Timothy where he knows like the end is drawing near and it's all about to happen, still uh, this is towards the end of his life and he's writing to this church uh, in modern-day Turkey, historically what they called Asia at the time, this region of Asia where lots of Gentiles were, to the city of Ephesus, wanting them to understand really a couple things. And I have the overall structure of the entire letter of Ephesus right here so you can see. Uh, the, the letter to Ephesus can be divided into two halves. So the first half, um, chapters 1 through 3, the main goal of Paul is to talk about uh, their position in Christ. He wants them to understand their justification. He wants them to understand what God has done whenever he's declared them completely righteous, completely holy, completely blameless. And for, for, for three chapters, he's going to talk about who they are in Christ, their position in Jesus, their new life in Christ, the new community that comes because of Christ, but positionally, who they are. So it's, it's orthodoxy. Uh, but the second half is our practice. So based on these unbelievable truths in the first three chapters that you see in, in the book of Ephesus, now in, in chapters 4 through 6, based on those truths, how do you live? So this is more about not justification, but sanctification. What does it mean to live like this? How do I pursue these things? How do I, if I'm already holy, pursue holiness? And you can see the unity and purity that we have in Christ, the submissiveness, and stability in Christ, etc. So if chapters 1 through 3 is orthodoxy, chapters 4 through 6 is orthopraxy. So it's who we are, and then also how we live that out. What does that look like? So that's the big idea and kind of big structure of Ephesians. So as we're going through it, through this first half, um, for the next month and a half, everything we're going to say is about who you are in Christ. 
specifically and especially today. I mean, this is likely the most dense set of verses, collection of set of verses of how God saved you. What did God do, if you're in Christ, when he saved you? Verses 3 through 14 that we're looking at today. So um, we're going to look at that particular today, verses 3 through 14. Now, I'm going to look at uh, 1 through 2 in just a second, uh, and then we'll get to 3 through 14. 3 through 14, by the way, is one long sentence. It's multiple sentences for us in, in the English language. But for Paul, whenever he wrote verses 3 all the way through 14, 202 words in the Greek is one long run-on sentence because he wants it all to be one big thought. So the sermon today, the next you know, 40 minutes, is one big thought of Paul and ultimately one big thought of God as he explains to you of how you were saved. So verses 3 through 14, one big 202 word sentence. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, Ephesians 1, this particular text, 1 through 14, contains one of the most amazing sentences ever penned in any language. It is like a waterfall pouring from the lips of Paul as he expresses the wonderful privileges of being a Christian. So if you've ever wanted to hear the intricacies and the depths of what it means and how God saved you, what did he do? What was the work of the entire triune God? It's in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We will highlight the, the work of the God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit in your salvation. Before we do that, look at verses 1 through 2. You can see, just so we know, this is Paul, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, writing to Christians. So these are, he's just talking to people who are Christians. That's why verses 3 through 14, when he talks about this amazing thing that happened to them, he's talking to just Christians, to the saints who are in Ephesus in the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. One of the standard uh, introductions that Paul usually uses. And then he goes to verse 3. And it starts off with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is key, because the rest of it, as I said, 3 through 14, is how you were saved. What did God the Father, what did God the Son, what did the Holy Spirit do, do in your salvation? But it's all prefaced on, or predicated on, the fact that it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as Paul writes and tells you how you were saved, his main goal and desire is that you would do what verse 3 says, that you would want to bless God the Father as you hear everything that happens. So as you hear these amazing details about what he's done, what it's meant to do is to evoke within you a heart of worship, to want to worship God because of this. Not get mad, not say, oh, hum, or no big deal. But the whole point of telling you how you were saved is meant so that you would bless God the Father. And, and, and we'll see it. He has this refrain each time as he talks about what each one of the triune uh, persons of the Trinity did in your salvation. As he talks about the Father, it says in the very end of verse 6, where it says, uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. It says it there in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. It starts at, to the praise of his glorious grace. And as he fins up, finishes up with what he's talking about, what the Son did, he says in verse 12, he, at the very end of verse 12, to the praise of his glory. And as he finishes up telling us what the Holy Spirit has done in our salvation at the end of verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So every time he talks about even one of the, what one of the piece, or persons of the Trinity has done, he always says, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory. And he starts it by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the entire point of telling you how you have been saved is not just so that it's informational. Oh, that's how it happened. But instead, it's always meant to lead you to want to worship Jesus. It's meant to evoke awe and wonder and worship right now and then continually. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's supposed to cause us to want to scream out at the top of our lungs, This God is amazing! I want to sing out praises to what, for what he's done. 
over and over and live a life that expresses worship over and over. It's meant to cause that to happen. So if I were to take verses 3 through 14 and try to give it a, a, a summary statement, what, what's the summary statement of 3 through 14? I would say it this way. The Trinity has blessed us and therefore we bless God by, the Trinity has blessed us by electing us, choosing us, adopting us, redeeming us, and sealing us for God's glory. That's what's going on here in verses 3 through 14. I'll read it again. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, has blessed us by electing us, choosing us, adopting us, redeeming us, and sealing us for God's glory. So it's meant to cause us to want to worship Him and give Him glory because of it. So let's, let's look at those things specifically. Uh, the first uh, thing that we're going to look at is what the Father has done. So the blessings of the election, you can go ahead and go to number one. The first thing that we're going to see is the Father has blessed us by choosing us to be elected. Verses three through six. The Father, uh, I'll point out the, the, Holy, the uh, Trinity for us just so you can already see. You can see in verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse three. And if you go down to the middle of verse five, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And then if you go to the end of verse 13, it says, who were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So we have the Father, we have Jesus Christ, and we have the Holy Spirit. That's in verse 3, that's in verse 5, and that's in verse 13. So the mention of the Trinity is in 3, 5, and 13. And as he's unpacking this amazing gospel, this amazing good news, he's wanting to help us see the work of each person of the Trinity in your salvation. The first thing that we're going to look at is the Father's work. The Father has blessed us by choosing us to be elected. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus. With, this, is, this is supposed to be and supposed to sound all-encompassing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us. That's believers. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise, there's the refrain, to the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed us in the beloved. Capital B meaning in Christ. So the first thing that we see is that the Father has blessed us by choosing us to be elected. This uh, choosing us is, is remarkable. When you look at verse 4, sometimes we can just say, even as he chose us, which is huge. But when we just focus in on he chose us, which is a striking phrase, and don't make sure we put the fourth and fifth word, which make it, make, make it even more breathtaking. We miss the full weight of it. So it's not just he chose us. It's he chose us in him. The most breathtaking part is that we're chosen to be in Christ. In Christ. So this means that the breathtaking part, the astonishing part, the most amazing part is that we are chosen in Christ, which means when God sees us, he sees now the righteousness of Christ. He didn't just adopt you or predestine you and say, I choose you. It's I choose you to be in Christ. So that when I see you, even though you were sinful and rebellious, now I see the holiness, I see the blamelessness, I see the righteousness of Christ. So our choosing, uh, our God's choosing of us, the main part is that we are chosen to be in Christ. No one's awesome. No one's, no one's great. Every one of us are a sinner, and yet no one deserves to be chosen, and yet God still chooses us to be in him out of sheer grace and mercy. He does it. The most amazing thing is he chooses us to be in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? He tells us right there. He chose us to be in Christ, um, and in love, this, or 
this choosing us to make us in Christ means that we are now holy and blameless. So one of the main goals of God electing us or choosing us is that now, because he's done this in verse 4, you can see it, we're now holy and blameless. So positionally, we're holy. Positionally, we're blameless. Chapters 1 through 3, the whole part he's going to tell us in the first three chapters is to allow us to let us in on the fact that our status now as Christ followers is that we are holy. And then the rest of 4 through 6 is practically now you have to pursue holiness. And what does that look like? So one of the goals in God's election in choosing us to be in Christ is that we would be holy. Now, why would the Father want to do this? Why would the Father say he wants to choose us so that we can be holy and blameless. I think there's two reasons that he tells us here in the text. The first one is love. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So let's, let's make sure we get this. So uh, as you're reading verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now remember, this is one big run on sentence. So that little two words, in love, right there at the very end of 4, can be like he chose us to be Holy and blameless before him in love, period. Or it can be, in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ. And the in love is just ambiguous enough to like, which one is it? (laughs) Is it the first one or the second one? And so I think that it's just ambiguous enough so that Paul just didn't have to write it twice. It's both. He could have said, he could have, if he wanted, blameless before him in love, period. In love, he predestined us. But it's just ambiguous enough that he doesn't have to actually write it twice, and it can go either way. If you have to press it, then, you know, the ESV people probably got it right. In love, he predestined us. But I think it it's actually can go either way. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So the reason why the Father would, in his infinite mercy, choose us to be elected, the first one is love. Let this sink in. Let this sink in. God loves you. That's why he chose you. God loves you. No one, no one loves you like God the Father. No one. I know you've got your your boyfriend or your husband or your dad or whoever. No one loves you like God the Father. I would even say this. No one knows how to love you like God the Father. No one knows how to love you. No one has ever loved you to the degree that God the Father has loved you. No one even comes close to that. No one can ever outlove God the Father for you, ever. So the, one of the main reasons that he has done this, one of the main reasons is because he loves you. More than you could ever conceive or ask or imagine, he loves you. But there's a second reason that he has chosen us. The second reason is, it says in the text, in love he predestined us for adoption. So the second reason is that he actually wanted you to be a part of his family. So the, when we say family, it's, uh, adoption, it's not just he, he, he really likes adoption. It's that he adopted you into his family. He wants you to now be in the family of God. This doesn't mean that you're now a half, half uh, child or a stepchild or whatever. That's not how it works with God. Whenever you're adopted into the family, you have all the rights. We're going to see this in the text. All the rights and privileges of anybody else in the family. So you are at the table like anybody else. You're not at the kitty table way in the back. You're not just, as long as I'm a stepchild in heaven, that's fine with me, just as long as I'm in heaven. No, no, that's not how it works. When God adopts you into the family, you're all the way in as a son or daughter. This means Jesus is your brother. Jesus, so when we're talking about being adopted into the family of God, there's this horizontal nature of it as, as, as in the family of God that now we have all rights and privileges just like any other brother Jews and Gentiles now have, a, have the same seat at the table. And we are all part of the family of God. Every single one of you is a, 
son or daughter if you're in Christ of God the Father. But there's not just a vertical aspect to be in the family. There's a horizontal aspect of being the family of God. Now, even now. So yes, we're all brothers and sisters of, of Jesus, and we're all sons and daughters of God the Father. But the horizontal aspect means that we're also brothers and sisters in Christ of each other right now. So we're actually all part of the same family right now. It's not one day that we're going to do that. We're part of it now. So around you are your brothers and sisters. And we, we should treat each other like family. We should love each other, care for each other. I think we actually do a pretty good job uh, here at Remedy. But there's churches that don't. But you do. But we, we continue to push that, that as much as we can. Everybody that's here, they are a brother and sister of yours. And you love and cherish them and get to know them and respect them and, and want to help them. And you're there for them. So this horizontal aspect of being adopted is something that we should never, ever forget. We, we, all of us, yes and amen, the, the vertical. I am now a son and daughter of the king. Woo, awesome. Yes, that's great. But everybody in this room is you're also your brother and sister. And so we love and care for them in the same way because we're all adopted into God's family. Now, uh, as we're looking and talking about this adoption, there's, there's three things in the text that I want us to really focus in on. Three these will not be on the screen. You should know, every one of these uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit uh, points, I have subpoints. Don't feel like you have to write those down. I would just, I'll just send you the PDF. Uh, I would rather you just bask in uh, the good news that you hear about the gospel and let your heart just become inflamed rather than make sure you get it all, thing, all things written down. There's too much. You're not going to get this down. So just listen. Let the waves of the good news flood over your mind and heart and soul and refresh your spirit. Um, but there's three things about our adoption in this text that I want us to uh, just hear. Like, these are glorious, glorious aspects of our adoption. First thing, our adoption. You can see it in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Our adoption, verse 4, happened before the foundations of the world. So that means, grab your Bible, go to Genesis 1-1. Go to Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you want to. If you want to, you can actually go above that and write, God chose me before the foundations of the world, ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Then, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the world. So before that even happened in Genesis 1-1, you were already chosen to be and adopted into the family of God if you're in Christ. Before Genesis 1-1. This is unbelievable. This is, before anything ever got created, God already knew you. He knew that he wanted you. And he adopted you in. You were not an afterthought of God. You weren't like, oh, I created everything. And oh, yeah, I created, created FUD. Ah, I guess. Uh, he's he's going to be okay, I think. We'll go ahead. And, like, it's not that, right? It's not like after everything got settled and here I come in 1974 and all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, adopt him in. That's not how it happened, right? It's every single one of us before the foundations, before Genesis 1-1 even happened. You're not an afterthought. You were completely chosen by God then to be adopted into his family. You didn't do anything good and you didn't do anything bad. He knew that we're going to be sinners. But he adopted you into it. So you're not an afterthought of God. He planned for you to be adopted by him before the world even began. That's the first note on our adoption. The second thing, glorious uh, aspect of our adoption is that our adoption is into the beloved. Look at the end of verse 6. He has blessed us in capital B, the beloved. This means in Christ. That's capitalized on purpose. So we are uh, adopted into the family of God. And if Jesus is the ultimate older brother, I want you to just with me 
conceive of how the Bible describes God's father, fatherly love for the son. All right? When any verses that we read about how much God the Father loves God the Son, all of us are like, man, I can't even describe that. It's like, it's indescribable. It's, it's, it's overwhelmingly, abundantly, infinitely available and there. It's, I can't even try to, I try to put my finite words on it, but there's, there's no words and language to describe the amazing love that God the Father has for God the Son. And it says that we are adopted into the beloved, which means the love that the Father has for the Son we are caught up into that family and the love that they have for each other. We're caught up into that love so that, the, that God the Father loves us in the same capacity, in the same levels that he loves the Son. We're caught up into the love of God the Father for God the Son. We're beloved. We are adopted into the beloved. This is unbelievable that we are caught up into this amazing love. That's the second aspect. The third aspect of our adoption is it was according to the purpose of his will. You can see this in verse 5. Um, before the foundation that we should be holy and blameless in love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So like, the first thing, our adoption happened before the foundations of the world. That means we weren't an afterthought. Not only were we not an afterthought, we were also adopted according to the purpose of the will. No one forced God's hand. It wasn't an afterthought and they're like, you better adopt him in. I, you, I'll let you have these. You gotta have. No one forced God's hand like, you really got to let this person in. No, that's not how it worked. We were, court, we were adopted according to the purpose of his will, which means he was absolutely pleased and delighted whenever he adopted you into his family. As Chick-fil-A would say, it was his pleasure. It was his pleasure. Like, it absolutely delighted him. It pleased him greatly to adopt you into his family. No one forced him. He wanted to. You weren't an afterthought, and it absolutely pleased him to do it. So, we have been adopted into the family of God. Now, just as a, uh, an application point, when we've been adopted into, we're talking about adoption, this means we've also been adopted into the family business. My friend Brian, he and I went to college together, and he, ever since he could walk and I think hold a wrench, he had to do the family business. He lives in Spartanburg and HVAC. So all he does is HVAC. He's, he knows how to install HVAC. He knows how to, everything about him. knows how they work. He knows, he knows all of it. And he, he went... I worked with him at Camp McCall, and he only got to be there for one summer because all the rest of the summers, dad's like, you got to come back and do the family business. You got to help me install and sell HVAC. That's all he ever knows. And he's at college. I remember when we were at college, he goes, I don't even know why I'm here getting this business degree. All I'm going to do after I finish is go back to Spartanburg and, and work with my dad's company doing the HVAC stuff. That's, I know that's what I'm going to do. And you know what he does? He works for his dad's company, and all he's ever done from eight to however out at 40, all he's ever done is HVAC. His dad, uh, started a second company with, da- it's called Davis, the way they sell HVAC, and now it's plumbing. And guess what? He does that. He runs the plumbing. So he still runs dad's business, plumbing and HVAC. All he's ever done and all he'll ever do is part of his dad's company. Now, by the way, they're doing our HVAC and our plumbing, and I told him to give us the Jesus discount. So I'm pretty excited about that. So since you're my best friend, you've got to give me the, like, the, the Jesus cost. Whatever you would charge Jesus is what you're going to cost Remedy Church for this HVAC and plumbing. He's like, all right, so um, we're getting a pretty good deal. But the whole point is this. He knew from, from the entire time all he's ever going to do is be in the family business because he's in the family. It's in the same way. You've been adopted into the family as a son and daughter and a brother and sister, and you've been adopted into the family business as well. The family, the, the family business means you're on God's mission. You are part of seeking and saving the lost. You are part of the Great Commission. Every single one of us, like, like my friend Brian, doesn't have a choice. 
you're part of the family business. You don't have the option to say you want to go sell insurance or if you want to be a car salesman. It's too bad. You're in this family business. You are part of God's mission, seeking and saving the lost, reaching people that don't know Jesus. So adoption into the family isn't just salvific. Adoption into the family is also being a part of the mission, is being a part of the family business. Now, as we transition, we're going to start seeing, from 3 through 6, we're going to start seeing the work of the Son in our salvation. So uh, you can go ahead and put up number 2. Point number 2, the Father's blessed us by choosing us. Number 2, the Son blesses us by redeeming us to be in Him. Now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe you're not, but I'll tell you what you should be thinking. Wait a second here. You just had the Father of 3 through 6, and now you're going back to verse 5. How is it like, you're supposed, that's not how you do stuff, Fudd. You always go like 3 to 6, 7 to 10, 11, I know. But here's what's the deal. This, this work of the Trinity is so intricately involved in saving us. So when we're looking at it, God the Father's work is in 3 through 6. But when God the Father's doing it, so is the Son. And so the Son's going to be in, uh, you can see here, 5 through 12. But then when we get to the Holy Spirit, he's actually going to be 11 through 14. Because the Trinity is one. They're one God. And so when God is saving us, it's always intricately involved as we explain how we're saved. So the Son blesses us by redeeming us to be in him. The Son blesses us by redeeming us to be in him. You can see, starting at verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's the refrain of the Father's work that's supposed to be for his glory, and now we keep reading about what, what Jesus has done. He's blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption. We have Redemption. In Jesus, we have redemption. The Son blesses us by redeeming us to be in Him. So what is redemption? What is redemption? One commentator says, Redemption denotes liberation. That's being set free. Liberation from bondage or imprisonment. So you were a slave. You were a prisoner. And redemption means you've been set free from prison. You've been set free from slavery. Now, more than that, John Stott says it this way. Redemption means Deliverance, or freedom from bondage, slavery, imprisonment, but deliverance by a payment of a price. So you didn't just get set free willy-nilly. It's just like, oh, yeah, sure, we just open the doors out, you're free. No, a payment had to be made in order for you to be set free from slavery. A payment had to be made in order for me to get out of prison, spiritual, uh, sinful prison. A payment had to be made. So Stott says, redemption means deliverance by a payment of a price. It was specially applied to the ransoming of slaves. Here, it is equated with forgiveness for the deliverance in question that we're talking about, the redemption that has to be made or the payment that has to be made for all of us is this, a rescue from the just judgment of God upon our sins. So the slavery we were in, the prison we were in, we were held captive there with no hope because God's just judgment was on us because we were sinners. We all willfully chose to be sinful and we had no way to get out. Because God's judgment was on us. So what did he do? Even though he was the one giving the punishment to us, rightly, he also is the one that gives us the payment, namely his son, so now we are out of slavery and out of prison. So the payment in question, as Stott says, is the judgment of God upon our sins. And the price paid was a shedding of Christ's blood when he died for our sins on the cross. And so redemption is the liberation by a payment of our slavery or our imprisonment. Jesus redeemed you. He bought you away from these things. He bought you away from slavery. He bought you away from the imprisonment that your sin put you in. So as we're looking at this, there's, there's five kind of uh, 
precious aspects of this redemption I want us to see. The first thing you can see it is in, uh, in him we have redemption through his blood. What I want you to note is in him we have redemption. It's not will have, it's have. So the first note on redemption is redemption is now. Redemption is now. It is not in the future. Our redemption is not something that we will receive one day. Our redemption is something that we have already received. We are redeemed now. We are paid for already now by God through Christ. The next thing is not only redemption now, redemption came at great cost. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The payment was God the Father's own son, Jesus. And it was at great cost. This cost was the sacrificial death of Jesus. And it was at a price. As 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, you were bought at a price. Who am I, right? But I like to put in the little parentheses, high. You were bought at a high price. Very costly. Very costly that God would send his own son. So our redemption is now. And our redemption came at great cost. Our freedom cost Jesus his blood. And he was perfectly, perfectly innocent. The next thing about our redemption is this. Our redemption also provides forgiveness. You can see this still. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Our redemption provides forgiveness. The imprisonment that we were in was our sin, and every one of us knew that we needed to be forgiven. In Luke chapter 7, it tells a story of this 7, 36 through 50. It tells a story of this woman who had been forgiven by Jesus. And whenever she's been forgiven for Jesus, the entire posture she has is one of worship. She lays on the floor. She's crying. She's taking her hair and cleaning his feet. She's anointing his feet with this oil uh, that she purchased. And so she, she understood what it meant to per- be forgiven. And while this is all going on, uh, Jesus is noticing the room. This guy, Simon, he's noticing. And Simon, you know, the Pharisees, he's kind of scoffing. Like, who is this woman? A couple, who is she and why is she here? And and why is Jesus, if he's a prophet, letting this dirty, sinful, nasty woman touch him? Now he's getting dirty and he's getting unclean. Why is all this happening? He's kind of scuffing in his mind. And Jesus looks at Simon, tells him a little story. And he, the whole point of the whole story is this. For people that have been forgiven much, they love God much. But people that think they've only been forgiven a little bit, they love God just a little bit. What we're seeing here is our redemption provides forgiveness. And every single one of us have been forgiven much now, if you're like the Apostle Paul, sometimes I feel like the Apostle Paul. Uh, I think it's uh, 1 Timothy 1.15. I am the chief of all sinners. I mean, I am just such a wretched sinner. And so I can identify with, like, that means I have truly, in some measure, not fully, in some measure started understanding the forgiveness that God has given me. And I think that if you're like that, if you start understanding the, full, the fullness of the forgiveness we've given, the truth is, we still vastly underestimate what we've been forgiven. We are way more forgiven than we can even conceive of. Redemption provides this unbelievable vast forgiveness that we couldn't even measure or even conceive of. And as Luke 7 tells us, whenever we realize we've been forgiven much, then we love God much. So the redemption that provides this forgiveness uh, is a way to help us understand how much we should love God. The next thing is this. Um, about our, our redemption. It's now, it came at great cost. It also provides forgiveness. The next one is that it is all of grace. It is all of grace. You can see at the end of verse seven, um, he's forgiveness of his sins according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. This redemption is 
all of grace. Lavish, episusin is, is the word lavish. It means to redound into abundance. It means to far exceed any number of measure. So I, I, I was trying to think, how can I explain this? So I've got multiple kids. You know this. But every, there's this age whenever uh, they are old enough to be able to do things. And they're like cranky if you don't let them. Like, I want to feed myself. And like they need their fork. And so, okay. And then you try to pour their pancakes. I want to do it. But they're not old enough to understand amounts. And so they get their two and three. And they get that pancake syrup. Give a two or three-year-old a pancake syrup jar and ask them to put their own syrup on. What do they do? It just it flows over the plate, onto the table, onto the floor. And you're like, wipe it like. That's what I want you to think of. In the same way that a two-year-old pours their own syrup onto their pancakes, that's the lavishness of God's love of grace on you. It's redounding into abundance. It's far exceeding the fixed number of measure. You don't need that much syrup, but if you were to hand them another one, they would keep on pouring. Like, well, I didn't need more. I need more. I need more. And and like uh, Elf with the syrup, you know, like, I need more. I need more. In the same way, that's the way I think that we can think of it redounding into abundance, to far exceed the fixed number of measure. Redemption is all of grace lavished on you. It's almost like this is so much lavished grace upon me, I don't even need this much. It redounds into abundance. This is, this is an unbelievable redemption that I've received from God. More than I could ever conceive of, grace upon grace upon grace. Lavishing upon me. It's lavished onto you. Jesus' redemption that he's given to you is an extravagant goodness and kindness it's lavished on you more than you could ever you're going to have that picture in your head forever a two-year-old pointing syrup just how much would they do i mean this that's when we talk about the lavish grace upon you it's poured out upon you more than you could ever conceive redemption is all of lavish grace lavish grace and the last thing that we see is this so when you're reading this this gets a little uh interesting i've always read it one way and as I was studying, I realized that maybe I've been reading it the wrong way the entire time. So according to the uh, riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. In all wisdom and insight. And every time I've read that, when we get to in all wisdom and, and uh, insight, I've always read that that's describing God's wisdom and insight that he has as he's done these four different aspects of our redemption. Uh, but when I was studying, they were saying, and I think it's good, I think it's right is that this in all wisdom and insight is not necessarily describing God, which, of course, he has all wisdom and insight, but that he's giving this to us. He's giving us. In our redemption, he's actually giving us or making us wise, making us, uh, giving us insight into what's going on. In all wisdom and insight, the reason why, because it says right after it, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So his wisdom and insight that he has that's infinite is being made known to us. So that means we're being given insights into the mystery of his will, which we're going to get to in just a second. So redemption also makes us wise. Redemption makes us wise. God is lavishing us on his grace, but he's also now lavishing on us wisdom and insight. It's not ultimate wisdom. It's not ultimate insight. You're not ever going to be as wise and insightful as God, ever. You won't know everything. But more and more, more and more, we will know him. And definitely enough to understand what he's done for us in the gospel to give him worship. As Sinclair Ferguson said, God lets us in onto his secret as a father shares with his children what the long-term plan is, what the mystery that's been hidden for generations and generations is now being made known. And he tells us, namely in verses 9 and 10. So if there was, a, uh, if there was kind of a, 
an upward mountain and you're at the pinnacle of the mountain of, of what's going on. Verses 9 and 10 is the pinnacle, except for since this is the gospel, it doesn't ever start on the ground. It just starts as high as you can reach, and then all of a sudden it gets to verse 9, you go a little bit higher, and you, get, you keep going. It's like good news galore, and then you get this 9 and 10. Here's the point. The, the pinnacle of the good news, right here in 9 and 10. The, the ultimate height that we're, he's, he's trying to help us understand about everything. You can see it right here. Verse 9 and 10. Making known to us the mystery of the real. What is it? Which he set, uh, which is, he's, mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. A plan for all fullness of time. What is it, Paul? Get to it. Here it is. To unite all things to him. Things on heaven and things on earth. He wants everything. Every tree, every person, every planet, every galaxy, everything that he's ever created. He wants all things to be united into him. Things in heaven, every person there and on earth, every angel, everything he's ever created to be united in him. Everybody that's He's ever from the foundations of the earth predestined to be in his family. Now, all united to him for his glory. The pinnacle of the entire how we get saved and the purpose of it all, the meaning of it all, is that it would all be for Christ and for his glory. John Stott says, in the fullness of time, God's two creations, the whole universe and his whole church, will be unified under the same cosmic Christ who is the supreme head of everything. So verse 9 and 10 tell us the ultimate plan of God in saving us, is that everything will one day be united to Jesus. Everything. You, me, everything. That's, <laughs> that is unbelievably all-encompassing. Unbelievably all-encompassing. So that's the redemption and the work of the Son and our salvation. The third thing we'll see is the work of the Holy Spirit. Number three, the Holy Spirit blesses us by sealing us, thus guaranteeing our election. Verse 11 through 14. The Holy Spirit blesses us by sealing us, thus guaranteeing our election. So, verse 11, in him, that's Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, uh, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So there's that that second refrain of to the praise of his glory as it's finishing what it does in Christ's work. And then all of this is about what the work of the Holy Spirit, the inheritance that we receive, uh, etc. And then you can see in him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is, in the, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So as we're talking about inheritance here, we also know that in verse 11 we have obtained this inheritance. That the Holy Spirit guarantees this inheritance, which we received as told to us back in verse 11. We're coming back to all that in a second. Uh, until we acquire possession of it, again, the next refrain about the Holy Spirit, to the praise of his glory. So over and over this refrain happens, to the praise of his, of his glory. Now I want to make sure that you're seeing uh, this, this new kind of thing that Paul's introducing. He's going to address it in the second half of chapter 2, uh, but I want to make sure you're getting uh, some insights on what he's doing. So there's a, there's a we, there's a you, and there's an our that he, he uses. And if you're reading, you're just kind of is it me? Who's he talking to? The Ephesians? Uh, but he's, he's hinting at some stuff that he wants to talk about when he gets to the second half of chapter 2. So if you look at verse 11, in him we, read that as the Jews. Read that as the Jews. And you can also see in verse 13, the you. Um, in him you, that's, that's the Gentiles when you heard. And then Paul brings it all together in verse 13, uh, 14, who is the guarantee of our So even there where Paul's talking about the differences of the Jews and the Gentiles, he's already trying to say... There's no half-child, there's no stepchild, no half-brother-sister. Everybody is all together. So 
even we, the Jews, we obtained the inheritance that, that we were the first to hope in Christ. You can see that in verse 12. Uh, but you also, Gentiles, when you heard the word of truth and your salvation, you believed. All of us, our, we have all now received our inheritance until we've acquired possession of it. So he's already trying to help us understand, which is going to come in the second half of chapter 2. That's verse 11 through 22, uh, where everybody's now one in Christ. But here we're talking about this inheritance. Now, this is where it gets really interesting, right? This phrase, we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. Five words in our English language. One word in Greek. One word. And that is eklethemen. Eklethemen. And it can be understood in two ways. Uh, This first way, we have obtained an inheritance. Or it can be understood as we were made an inheritance or a heritage. Either way, the first one, both are biblical, right? Both are biblical. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it talks about the fact that we have received an inheritance from the Lord. But it also, this idea that we're made an inheritance or we're made to be those who are the church, made to be Christ's possession, that God now is our owner, that, that's also biblical. Titus 2.14, that we are God's possession now. So both of these are biblical. So, okay, which one is it here, Fudd? I think it's like the in love. I think that is just ambiguous enough that it can go both ways and it should be understood both ways. And that's why if you look at the end of verse 14, look at verse 14. It says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Look at this. Until we acquire possession of it. You see that? See the little footnote where it says, or until God redeems his possession? Because if it's the second way, it's until God gets his inheritance, not until we get our inheritance, but until God gets his church, his beautiful bride that he has been redeeming as his own, his inheritance, which is his bride, the, Christ, the body of Christ. So it can go either way. I think both are true, and I think both are what's trying to be, be taught here. So um, what does that mean then? What does that mean? I think it means this. There's a couple things about our inheritance then. Uh, if I'm looking at the idea of inheritance from both angles, what does that mean? It means that we've been predestined for it. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. So God has predestined his inheritance to him. And he's also predestined us to receive our inheritance. It's all, a uh, Paul reminding us of this all uh, work of God that he has done before the foundations of the earth. Before the foundations of the earth. The second thing, and let me just take a side note on this predestination. Because um, I want to make sure we understand. I know predestination Predestination is a, is a controversial topic, okay? The point of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is not meant, when he talks about predestin, it, predestination, it is not meant to evoke uh, controversy and, and anger and uh, bickering among people. That's not the point, right? The point, which we've already pointed out when he talks about this, is for us to worship Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father. The refrain to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise, the, the message of the good news of gospel and God's electing his, his people is meant to evoke in us worship. I can't believe you would do this. So the, the telling of the how we're saved is supposed to in every single one of us. You, you don't have to agree with predestination. To be a member of this church or to be a Christian. <laughs> Not a prerequisite, right? Um, but as we hear it and as we read it, it's certainly seems to be what the Lord is saying, right? That's, that's the only way I can understand it. But as we understand it, it is never meant to be something that uh, causes disunity in the body. Instead, it's to, supposed to cause a worshipful unity in the body because it's co- we're supposed to be blessing God and giving Him glory for what He's done. 
That's just a side note on this. I want to come back. I'm not going to come back to that anymore. All right, so here we go. Some other things about the inheritance. It's also according to God's will. He predestined us according to the purpose of, of him. So it's God's will that he would have uh, a willed possession to him and that we would also be able to receive this inheritance. And as I said, it's supposed to drive us to worship him. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. The inheritance that we receive and the fact that we are God's heritage, inheritance, is supposed to be <laughs> for the purpose of making us worshipers of Jesus. Worshipers of Jesus. So, if you're hearing all this and you're like, I don't know about this predestination stuff and I don't know if all this is here, let me just make sure um, I, I say this. Romans 9, which if you don't know anything, is a big chapter on this whole topic of pre- God's election and predestination. But it's always followed by Romans 10, right? Never, ever, ever do you not, should you not read Romans 9 without Romans 10. Therefore, then we have to go. And how beautiful are the feet that bring the gospel to They have to hear. And how can they hear if they don't? So they have to hear so they can put their trust in, in God. So Romans 9 always follows verse, Romans 10. Romans 10 always follows verse 9. As we read this big, long, one run-on sentence, and we talk about God's sovereignty in election, and man's responsibility thus for to trust and believe. In this big one-on-run-on sentence, Paul puts man's responsibility in verse 13. When you see, in him, when you also heard the word of the truth of the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. So, in this one long run-on sentence, we should never ever try to think that Paul's not trying to also, thus God's not also, as he's talking about God's sovereignty and our salvation, also talking about man's responsibility in hearing and believing. Now, you might say, how do those things work together? How is it that those things can happen? How is it that uh, God's sovereignty and election and man's responsibility go together, and how are they not in contradiction? Someone once asked Charles Haddon Spurgeon this exact question. How is it that God's election and man's responsibility are not in contradiction? How do you reconcile the two? And his answer was, I never have to reconcile two friends. They're already reconciled. It's not a problem for God, so it's not a problem for me. God clearly doesn't have a problem with it. Now, I understand that in our limited mind frame, it's difficult for us to put those two things together. How then does God save and sovereignly choose, and we also have the responsibility, and if we don't choose God, we're held accountable and responsible, and therefore we receive hell? How does that work? Well, it's a mystery. I don't know exactly how it works, nor should we ever think that we're going to fully understand it. I just know the necessity of both. God still chooses And we're still absolutely responsible to hear and believe. So if you're not a Christian here today, the only thing that you need to do is hear the gospel and believe. Trust in Jesus right now that he died for you on the cross. Believe in his work on the cross for your sins. Cast all of your hope on him. Confess your sins and ask him to come in and lavish his grace upon you and forgive you and be saved. And then we don't have to worry. You were one of the elect. You're saved. Like That's how I think that we need to think about it. I think that's how the Bible wants us to understand these things. In our limited perspective, what we do is proclaim the gospel. We do the family business so that people can hear it and they can trust. And in the end, we know that the Lord wills whom he wills. Even if you wanted to change it, you couldn't because you're not God. So be obedient to the family business and ask people to hear and believe. Now, uh, as we're moving forward, I want to show you a couple things about the, this amazing work of the Holy Spirit. This amazing work of the Holy Spirit. So 
You see, so that we were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. He ends that refrain about Jesus, and then he goes into a little bit more detailed work in verses 13 and 14 about the Holy Spirit's work in the gospel. So I want to see you. I want you to see this. Verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of the truth, of the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the first work that we can note about uh, the Holy Spirit and our work of our salvation is the Holy Spirit has sealed us. Being sealed is a mark. So we've been marked. This is God marking us, uh, showing that we are authentically his and that now he, it's, it's a mark of ownership and authenticity. So we're marked as authentic. We are God's and a mark of ownership. He owns us. Now, this, this mark or this seal that he puts on us, it's not external. God didn't, like, tat you on your back, right? God's. It's not how it works. It's, a, it's an internal sealing, right? It's not an external, like, there it is. You can see it, right? It's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an internal. Namely, not a tat, not some kind of exterior. It's an internal sealing or an internal mark of God himself. God puts the Holy Spirit in you. So the mark of this authenticity of ownership is namely God has put in you. He is the ceiling. So being marked by God means that we are internally now, and it's not something that you're like, ah, I don't want to be sealed, forget it, I don't, want, I don't want the mark. It's like, oh yes, give me the Holy Spirit so that I know how to walk and honor you, Jesus Christ, for my entire life. We are internally sealed by the Holy Spirit. And this set of verses, verses, did the lights just flicker? Okay, 13 and 14 um, are probably one of, if not all over the Bible, some of the best verses for assurance of your salvation. If you ever struggle with assurance of your salvation, verses 13 and 14 are unbelievable. They're unbelievable for you. But the first thing is, if you're struggling with assurance, you have been sealed. Which means, if God has marked you of authentic, authentically a Christian and owned, he, he's not going to take it away. He's not going to be like, ah, I take revoked. You're, you're sealed. Internally sealed by the Holy Spirit. That gives you great assurance of salvation. The other thing about the work of the Holy Spirit, cherished kind of aspects of God's Holy Spirit's work in our salvation, not only were we sealed, but we also, the Holy Spirit has been promised to us. You were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. So in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus is having this interaction with the disciples, and he says, I know you like having me here. I mean, every one of us, you're Jesus. I like you here. I just, you're an awesome guy to be with, right? He's like, I know you like having me, but it's better that I leave. And they're like, What? How is it better that you leave? He's like, no, 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 here's the thing. When I leave, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the comforter, he's going to come. And that's even better because you're not going to have God beside you. You're going to have God in you. And he makes this promise to him that when I leave, you're going to have God in you. They're like, that doesn't, we don't want that. That's not how we want it. We want you with us. And he's like, it's better. Just trust me. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. Jesus is in heaven, right? He promised. Peter stands up at Pentecost, preaches. What happens? Promise fulfilled. Holy Spirit comes down. Every believer there is filled with the Holy Spirit. You should read Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and just see how jazzed they are. About, Do you know about this Holy Spirit in us? Holy moly, we have Jesus. But this is unbelievable. He's like in me. He's in me. Like, so the promised Holy Spirit has been given to us by Christ back in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, fulfilled in, in Acts chapter 2. And now we have the promised Holy Spirit in us. So we have the assurance of the sealing, and we also have this promise kept by Jesus. And just remember, Jesus keeps every promise always. Third one is this. We have a guarantee. You can see it if you keep going. 
Um, this promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee. You have a little footnote for four or down payment. He's the down payment of our inheritance. This Greek word uh, guarantee, erabon. So if you ever bought a house, you know, you have to put up earnest money. You're like, I promise you I'm going to buy this house. Here's my 500, 1,000, you know, whatever house you buy, right? Here's my money. And so whenever you give them this earnest money, you buy a house, you're promising to buy the house no matter what. And if you say, I don't want to buy the house, they get to keep your money. So you're going to buy the house because you want to lose 500 bucks or whatever it is. And it's, it's the same kind of thing that, that God has given you an earnest, except God's giving it to you. He's given you an earnest. He's given you a promise. He's given you a down payment. And like you and I, we can be fickle and say, I don't want to buy the house. God doesn't do that, right? Once he's given you the down payment of the inheritance you're going to get, once he's given you that down payment or that, that earnest or that Erebon, it's there. He's going to buy the house. He's going to completely and fully purchase you one day where you will be in glory with him forever. So he gives us, if there ever was a text about assurance of salvation, it's this guarantee when he says he has guaranteed our inheritance by giving us the Holy Spirit, the Erebon, the guarantee. Uh, Tony Morita says it this way. Um, what, I'm sorry, let me read one, one other thing. One commentator says this means, this is the Holy Spirit telling us that God's, this is God's first installment, deposit, down payment, and pledge that you are his forever. Tony Morita says it this way. God is not just telling us something about in the future. He's bringing the future to the present so that in this guarantee, we may now taste what our future is going to be like. We have the Holy Spirit now, not just one day. So we are now Full first installment deposit down payment pledge that we are God forever. And we get to experience what the future will be like even now. Not fully. It's going to be different in heaven, even better. But still nonetheless, still nonetheless, what it's going to be like. And then he finishes that same thing, finishes refrain, to the praise of his glory. After each member of the Trinity, to the praise of his glory is grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So as he finishes... This entire thing about our uh, salvation and how it happens, the good news of the gospel, unpacking with unbelievable depth, depth. The only thing left for us to do is what Paul's doing. Join in with the Apostle Paul. Join in with the Apostle Paul. He's like a superhero. And join in with the Apostle Paul and worshiping him and declaring God's praises with what he's doing. Join the Ephesian church. Join the Apostle Paul as their hearts are set aflame as he's writing this or as they're hearing this. Oh, praise be to God. We should worship. The only thing that we can do is join in and start worshiping God with these people. Because God, the Father, has chosen us. Jesus, the Son, has redeemed us. And God, the Holy Spirit, has assured us of our salvation. So we need to, with all of the Ephesians and the Paul and all the Christians of all time, join in in worshiping the triune God. Triune God. Tony Marita says this. We were made for praise and our hearts will only be satisfied, only be satisfied when we worship this God. Let's pray. God, we do pray for your help this morning in many ways, that you would, one, uh, cause our hearts and minds to, with your great measure, understand more and more and more and more and more and more this great gospel, that we would understand it more. And that as we understand it, we wouldn't just stay there, but we would be led, Father, by you to a great uh, adoration. We would find ourselves in absolute awe and wonder. Our, Our souls would be evoked into worship and that we would give you all the glory you deserve because of this salvation that you've given to us. 
I pray for us all that that would happen. What a great grace and mercy that would be if you did it. We love you, God. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.